session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Jalakwi, and I'll be you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Um, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. The War of Art, Break Through the Blocks and Win Your Creative Battles. And uh, this is a pretty well-known book on, I mean, as the book title says, about how to overcome your own blocks when it comes to being creative and artistic. As you'll hear me say often, this book was recommended to me by my brother Parham. He had read it recently, and I'd heard a lot about it, so I'm glad to um, have the opportunity now to read it. So, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Let's get to the book of the week from last week that I will talk about uh, tonight. It is The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering, and The Search for Meaning by Paul Bloom. Um, this was a book I'd seen Paul Bloom's other book, or I'd read his book Against Empathy, and liked uh, that book, and so I definitely wanted to read this when I saw he had a new one coming out, especially because it aligns with a lot of my own thinking when we look at people trying to figure out what's the best life to live, how should we live our lives. Lots of different theories come up, people have different ideas, and one thought that comes to my mind is when we try to find the way to live the best life, we often are looking for a recipe that's going to be true for everyone. And I think it's important to think about the principles, think about the themes and the concepts that are important. But I'm reminded of Viktor Frankl's statement or what he says, we often ask, what's the meaning of life? as if we're asking life to tell us what is the meaning. And he says, it's actually a question that life asks of us and asks of each of us individually. So there isn't one uh, meaning of life, but it's trying to find a meaningful life. Now, to begin with, you might even ask, well, what's, what is a good life? And when we think of a good life, we might think of just being happy, feeling pleasant, feeling good, having joy. And that can be part of it, and even it depends on how we define those things. If we just think of feeling good in the moment, a joy or pleasure, then we could be going towards what might be considered a hedonistic type of a life, where just do whatever feels good in the moment. Seek the most pleasurable activities and things that you can do. And, and some of that can be good, but... What might be more uh, of a fulfilling type of life, or if we think of happiness in a different way, a longer-term type of a thing, then we go towards things like contentment, meaning, um, feeling good about the life that you've lived, which to me is 
the better approach. Now, this isn't binary. It's not that it's either pleasure or meaning. A meaningful life will also include a lot of pleasure and joy, of course. But it's not going to be what determines the next thing you do. And that's what I think is important is that there's not going to be one set recipe for each of us. But it's important for us to think about the type of life we want to live. What do we want to be the guiding principles, the guiding values, the things that help us make the decisions of what we're going to do next or what we'd like to do in the grander scheme of our lives. And this is where we do have to think about what's the recipe we are looking for for ourselves. And the reason why I like this book or even just the title of The Pleasures of Suffering um, and the search for meaning is that it has that word suffering and that comes up throughout the book a lot is that if you just think it's about pleasure and joy feeling good in the moment then in every in any given moment you're going to just do what feels better of the variety of choices you do or the best out of the variety of choices that you can have which means you're always going to choose pleasure but you're also always going to choose comfort and the easier route and that's why actually i think we should not go on just that path and we don't want our driver to just be what feels good or less bad in the moment because as we get through our lives we'll see that the things that tend to make us feel good long term are not just the instant pleasures of life that those aren't the things that will lead to contentment and lead to this long-term feeling of fulfillment. So if we accept that we shouldn't necessarily seek out suffering, because that itself can be an issue I might touch on today, we shouldn't just seek out, well, if it hurts, that means it has to be good, but that we don't want to shy away from suffering or that we recognize that some of the meaningful and the most meaningful things in life will involve pain then it'll allow us to make different decisions about what to do next. So let's just say in a simplified view of things, you're in a relationship, and this is something I bring up often, you can have a difficult conversation that can lead to things being closer, emotionally more intimate, potentially resolving an issue, or you can choose to avoid having that conversation. Now, in that moment, if you just choose whatever feels better, you're almost always going to choose not to have the conversation because that will almost always not feel as good as having a difficult conversation. But if we recognize that to have a good, meaningful relationship, I need to, to have these uncomfortable conversations, we will face that and we might go into that and make that decision of choosing the less pleasurable thing in the moment. So I think that's that's very important to keep in mind when we look at these types of decisions that we're making to choose our lives. Now, when we have these philosophical discussions that I'll, I'll get into in the book or in discussing the book, they're often very difficult to have because we imagine certain things, which is good. We have these thought experiments or we try to think of what life would look like this way or that way. But there's a lot of imagining happening. And sometimes when we do that imagining, we don't realize the things that we take for granted in those 
imaginations or the assumptions that are t at place. For example, if someone says, would you rather be yourself or this dog over there? And sometimes people think, oh, you know, being a dog is so nice. You don't have to worry about the things I worry about, like taxes and work and this and that. It must be so nice to be a dog. But what you're really doing is you're imagining you yourself now being that dog with all the mental faculties that you have, and now you're the dog. But we don't really know exactly what it's like to be a dog, the qualia, if you... Uh, some of the terms that is used in consciousness about something like this. So you don't know what it's actually like to be the dog, but we're pretty sure the dog doesn't think the way that you do. So the dog doesn't walk around thinking, oh, it's so nice to not have to pay taxes and not have to worry about, uh, you know, I don't know, family issues that humans deal with. The dog is just being a dog. And so when we try to imagine certain things that if I was this person, if I was that person, we have to recognize the limitations and that type of thinking. I think it's good to think about and to explore, but sometimes when I read a book like this or hear people's arguments, I think it's limiting if we don't think about the limits of the conversation or what we're talking about. So if we imagine, well, imagine if you could just be happy all the time, or, uh, you know, he shares uh, Daniel Gilbert's research. Imagine if you're just swimming in a pool and it always feels good. Isn't that a good life? But is that really possible? I mean, I don't know if it is. Um, you know, he talks about Daniel Gilbert's argument that, well, let's say you're doing something that feels good most of the time, and then some of the time you feel like your life is empty. Well, wouldn't that be a good life? Wouldn't you want that if 23 hours a day you feel good and one hour a day you feel bad? But there's a lot of assumptions there. If your life is empty, can you enjoy just swimming in the pool? Maybe for some of the time, but I think most humans won't actually enjoy that. Or if it's just about pleasure and you could feel good no matter what, if you just found out your loved one died, can you go swim in the pool and feel good? Probably not. You're going to feel bad for some time. So I think it's hard to have some of these arguments. Even right now, I've simplified them. But just something to keep in mind when we think of this is the good life, this is the right life, that we're very limited because we're doing a lot of speculating in trying to understand that. We can try to have some research that looks at what types of things give people meaning, make them feel fulfilled. That can be very helpful. And I also think it could be good to think of what type of a life do I want to live? What do I want to be the driving forces in how I live my life? And to me, looking at meaning is something that um, would lead to a better life or the type of life I would like to live and I would encourage others to live as well. And here I'm reminded of um, Soren Kierkegaard's quote of, life can only be understood backwards but must be lived forward. I might not be giving a direct quote there. And I think that's one of the challenges of life that, yes, if you're 80 years old and then you might say, oh, I wish I'd lived my life this way. If I could go back, maybe I would do it differently, but obviously you can't. And I think that's why it can be nice for us to learn from one another, from each other's experiences, from the experiences of people who have lived a long life to share. And at the same time, realize that just because they went through that doesn't mean you would also, but there might be some general principles that you can learn from them. So the book gets into lots of aspects of pain and suffering in different areas, some of them more 
a smaller scale. I think there's a chapter called Benign Masochism. So, you know, this makes you think of why do people like horror movies? Why do they like scary movies? And science people think, well, the people that like scary movies don't get as afraid as the people that don't. And it actually doesn't seem to be true. What actually makes it fun for them is they get so scared. And so he explores some arguments or reasons why that might be. And I think it is interesting to think about that. Why would we intentionally want to feel something that we think is aversive? Sometimes it's because we feel it in a way that also still feels safe, I think. So you feel the terror and you might get lost in the movie for a bit, but you also can still step back and realize it's not real enough that you can still feel okay. I don't think most people would want to actually be in in the horror movie. Even you go to a haunted house, you might really get freaked out, but you still know it's a haunted house and you can leave. So it's not that same feeling of actually being terrified. So why might we enjoy some painful things to go through? Now, another important thing for me in these types of conversations is when we recognize that pain is often part of growth. And so this is something I've talked about a lot when we're looking at our children. When you see them facing pain, and this extends into ourselves, but really for parenting, we can have much more control over what happens to our children to make these decisions about what they're going to go through. When you see them facing pain, we have to ask, is this a pain that leads to damage or a pain that leads to growth? And so this also fits into the saying that's a very simplified one, that what doesn't kill me makes me stronger or what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, which I think has some value to think about it that way. But of course, no one thinks that's completely true. So I thought about that a little bit more. For example, if someone gets into a bad accident. I tell you, this person got an accident, they didn't die, but they're severely brain damaged to the point where they're essentially a vegetable. I don't think most people would say this person got stronger, right? You wouldn't say it didn't kill them, it made them stronger. And it's probably because parts of their brain got damaged and it's basically a permanent damage, not just temporary damage. Because you might say in your body, when you exercise, sometimes there's a temporary damage, if you consider it that, that leads to growth. I guess it depends on how you define those terms. But so here, to me, when I hear, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger, I think it's important to look at, well, in what ways? Or if someone goes through a trauma, not everyone will experience PTSD. We got to have George Bonanno on the show to talk about that and how most people actually don't. But if someone is severely traumatized to the point where they're having significant symptoms, which we would actually even say if it's PTSD, it's significantly interfering with their lives, it would be hard to say it made them stronger. Maybe at some point down the line it would. Um, but at this point, it seems unlikely that it did. But taking a step back to what I was saying, we're looking at does this pain lead to damage, which is harmful short-term and long-term, or does it lead to growth, which might feel bad short-term, but lead to something better long-term? And so... With our kids, it's important to think about that, but important for our own lives as well. Is what I'm doing that's maybe going to hurt, is it going to lead towards growth so I should go towards it if, I, if that's what I want to do in my life and how I want to live my life? Or should I avoid it because it's actually damaging me? 
usually it's not so black and white. We don't always know. You can be in a relationship that's toxic. And so you could think, well, is this where I need to work harder on the relationship so I should stay in it? Or is it actually damaging me? It's just toxic, which is a good way of looking at it in this framework, which is poisonous. So it's just causing me damage and I should walk away. It's not always going to be so black and white, but that's one good thing for us to think about in making those kinds of decisions. So I'll continue the discussion on this theme from the book, The Sweet Spot by Paul Bloom after the break, and also get into some, when we look at unchosen suffering, and when people think, well, was it just meant to be? I'll get into that a bit too. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book, The Sweet Spot by Paul Bloom. Um, And so it brings up a lot of these themes about suffering, pain, meaning. What does it even mean to live a meaningful life? And what should we really be going for in our lives? Because I think it's important for us to think about that now or at any given time, because you will get to a point where you can't, obviously, we can never go back, but you might um, get to a point where you regret the, the way you've been living your life. And so I don't think there's one set recipe for everyone, but I do think it's worth thinking about quite seriously about what is it that's guiding your life? What are you striving towards? What are the values that you are choosing to live your life by um, so that you're more likely to be content and feel fulfilled in your life? And uh, he actually quotes some books on meaning. One of them I, I really like, The Power of Meaning by uh, Emily Esfahani Smith, where she talks about um, some of the things that give meaning to life. And when you ask people what their lives um, were like and what gave them meaning, you tend to get certain um, similar answers. But things like relationships tend to be a big part of it. Um, do you feel close to others? Do you feel connected to others? Also things like um, giving to others in some way, being part of something bigger than yourself also, and, and storytelling or having a narrative of your life. These kinds of things can can give one meaning. Again, I don't think it's one thing that makes a life meaningful, but it's something worth looking at. What is it that I'm trying to create in my life? And I think it's because we're going to look back at our lives or at any given moment, you have the sense of what has my life been like? How good do I feel about it? Now, some of this is we compare to others, life satisfaction, or we look at people around us. And I think it's impossible for it not to have some degree of that. Even what we look at our lives or how we look at our lives is going to be influenced by society. What society tells us is good and bad. Not to say it's purely that. I think there's some level of morality that is innate. It's not purely from the outside. But I think it's impossible for it to not be affected by what we see around us. So if there are some values that people say, this is what a good mother or father does, and you have children, of course, that's going to impact how you feel about yourself and how fulfilled you feel as a mother or father. You could say, well, I don't want to care about the judgments of others or comparisons. And yes, you would hope you compare that just to your own potential of what you could have been. But I think it's impossible for it not to be affected by parenting, let's say, techniques of the time. So right now, 
For most people, if you were to hit your children, you would likely feel guilt or regret about that afterwards, hopefully even during, but let's say afterwards if you reflected on your experience as a parent. 200 years ago or in certain societies, it might not have been that way. So if you look back at your parenting, you'd have said, I did a good job or I was a good parent, or at least that aspect of it wouldn't be seen negatively. So, of course, the ways that we value things, the ways that we think of it as good or bad, always has at least some influence by culture, society, the historical context of when you are living, that's going to help you um, or is going to have an impact on what you look at as good or bad. But I always have felt that happiness is overrated in the sense of happiness in a given moment, and really we should seek more of a meaningful life. So this is important because you see it in a lot of experiences where people will say, oh, well, well, you don't like that, stop it. Or this doesn't make you feel good, don't do it. Um, and this is why I say it a lot for parents because I see it happens with how parents treat their kids where they say, oh, my kid's not liking this, let me stop them from doing that. This doesn't feel good, let's stop. Oh, they're having an issue with the teacher, let's switch the class. Rather than recognizing that a lot of those are actually opportunities for growth that will help your child live a more meaningful life. So we can do the hedonistic, pleasure-seeking, pain-avoidant type of um, decision-making for ourselves, but often as parents, you can make big decisions. So with that student I was saying, your child has a issue with their teacher. You can either say, okay, let's talk with the teacher. Let's help our child see if they can actually work through this issue. And if so, they'll actually grow from it. And again, here, it depends on what that teacher is doing. If they're being abusive, that might be pain that's damaged, and you will need to remove your child and report it to the school and talk about what's going on. But if it's just a disagreement or if it's just uncomfortable, that's a discomfort that I would hope you encourage your child to actually face and embrace, to grow from it. And similarly, we need to do that ourselves. And often the things that do give life meaning have some suffering in them or some pain. Parenting is one that comes up a lot, and he talked about throughout the book that to be a parent, there's a lot of pain and, and stress and anxiety that comes up with it. Now, people often will look back on their experience as parents, and they say it's the most meaningful thing of their life. And I think parenting is a great example of, of these themes. But during it, there were sleepless nights, stress, constant worry that they were going through. It's not that it was a pleasant thing. And he quotes Zadie Smith, who's written um, White Teeth, amongst many other things. But she wrote once, it hurts just as much as it is worth. And I think that very succinctly captures this theme that often the things that really matter hurt, or also this is very true with relationships. It hurts as much as you love or felt love or connected to that person. And so I think it was in the Irvin Yalom book from earlier this year with his wife Marilyn where a grief is the price we pay for love or something to that degree, which I think is very true, that if you have relationships that are meaningful and close and loving, they feel so good, and that's nice, but that also means when you lose them, they hurt just as much, just as deeply. Or the hurt is going to be 
commensurate or equal to how much you loved that person. That's why it can be so painful. And I think that's very true. And so when we create relationships, this is going to be a big aspect of it is that do we go into the different types of pain? One is the pain of potentially losing someone. So if you never get close, there's no pain of loss, or at least it's mitigated or minimized. So that can feel nice, but you also then don't get the meaningful relationships, the close relationships and what comes with that. Um, Do you want to avoid all conflict? Well, you can have a relationship that's not very close, or you can have a robot boyfriend or girlfriend. Now, I mentioned this last week on the show. I introduced a term distant gratification on Wednesday's show last week. And so it's kind of like instant gratification means what feels good now, but distant gratification, I was using that to describe things that we can kind of enjoy from a distance so we don't have to risk as much getting hurt. So for example, a fantasy, yeah, we can go into that daydream or fantasy and think about things, but it's very safe there because you don't have to actually risk doing anything. And there is a movement towards these things of like virtual uh, partners. And really there are things like robot girlfriends. I think it's more girlfriends from what I know, but robot girlfriends or boyfriends are things that people seek out in a way that they can have a relationship. It still is a relationship. I think you can relate to anything, even inanimate objects. So you could relate to this and have a relationship. But if we really think of why people are seeking it out and why they even sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, it's so nice to have a girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife that you never have to have fights with or never nags you or never is in a bad mood, is always happy, always wants to please you and make you feel good. And there's some appeal to this, that it feels nice that someone is or some this being is always there to serve you, never negative, always positive. But it's also very lacking in meaning. You're not going to feel that closeness that you can have with someone where it is real and can be unpredictable. Sometimes it does hurt. You do have to navigate between trying to understand how they're feeling, how you're feeling, needs for closeness and space and all bunch of other things that come with having a intimate romantic relationship. But again, if we go back to what I was talking about in the previous segment, if your only guide is what feels good or less bad in the moment, then yeah, the the robot boyfriend or girlfriend would be perfect. They'll never bother you. They'll never make you feel bad. And so we think about what we're trying to create in our lives. And if it is just avoiding pain, then yeah, that would be a good way out. But I think likely if you've been with a robot girlfriend or boyfriend for 50 years, you won't feel this close type of relationship or as close. To be honest, you can get attached to anything. Uh, Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway, we saw how attached he got to his friend Wilson, the volleyball. And I really think there's something there when you're alone, you can relate to anything. So I think people can get very close and would get attached to their um, robot boyfriends or girlfriends, but there would be something missing in what they can experience as well. And so in this book, The Sweet Spot, Paul Bloom explores these themes of what it means to suffer, what is pain, why would we seek it out? Um, You know, I think 
pain, usually when something is worthwhile, it does hurt. But I think sometimes, and he talks about that in the book, we can be misled by that because you think, well, if something is hurting, it must be good. Or if we make it more painful or difficult, that makes it good. So, you know, I was imagining if you heard the story of someone and a doctor and she would travel through this village and it was very hard to get to the children in this village and she would have to go several hours to get there and then help these kids, you probably would feel like, wow, that's very meaningful and you would really admire her for that. And so someone hearing that might be, let's say, helping kids at a clinic across the street, but now to make it feel like it's equal, they make it harder to get there. So they roll themselves there over nails or I don't know, something that makes it painful. And so it could seem like, well, if it's hurting more then what they're doing is more meaningful. But I think that type of suffering that isn't part of actually doing the thing and you're just adding to it, making it more painful, I don't think that has the same value. So oftentimes we have feelings about things and they're good, but they can mislead us too. So just thinking, well, if it hurts, it must mean something good or someone shows us that it hurts, that must mean that they did something good or it's more valuable. That can mislead us. And people do this. You know, you think about if you're giving a gift or if you're doing something, you want to show that it costs you more in some way. And then even with that, of course, you want to show that it costs more without advertising it. So if there's some indirect way, even better, because we know if we advertise it, that comes off a certain way. And so here we see the ways that it's kind of like an arms race when we're trying to express things but not get caught that we're trying to express things. I want to show I'm a good person, but I know if I tell you I want you to think I'm a good person, that won't make you think I'm a good person. So I have to do it in a way that you don't realize I'm doing it anyway. So we see this happening with the ways we show effort or suffering because we know if someone suffered to do something, it makes us think it was more noble, it was better in some way. And so people have taken this team and say, well, if I hurt myself, that shows my my love. And you see this in different, even religious types of ceremonies and things that sometimes adding a pain could be a way of showing your love for for God or love for the religion or the community um, in some way. And sometimes we, we see this even things like hazing, where you pay a cost to be part of a group. That can be a little bit different because you actually pay the cost to be part of the group and it's your way of showing that you actually really want to be in the group. You're not just saying you want to be part of it. So the book really is fascinating in exploring these different aspects of not just you know pain and suffering, but what does that mean? Why would we seek it out? Some arguments, a lot of them, and he says it's not that there is a clear answer, but it's just exploring different perspectives, and he shares different people's arguments on different things. Another theme throughout the book is something called motivational pluralism, which means that we want many things, so we have a motivation for many things. And I think that's a very good concept to keep in mind. And I actually think one of the hardest things of life is that, this motivational pluralism, that we want different things. We have various needs, various wants, and they sometimes align well, sometimes they conflict. Or also there's really just finite time and finite resources to pursue different things. So you want to feel joy and feel good, but you also want to create things that are meaningful that can hurt 
or you want to pursue one need of, let's say, thirst, but then something else comes up at the same time. And because of that, we have to find a balance of how to make all of that work. I actually think this is one of the most challenging parts of being human is balancing all of these different wants, needs, drives into one lifetime. And how do we find that balance? And I think it's a balance that we are constantly striking. I've used the analogy of a tightrope in various ways. You have to keep refining that balance. It's not something you just find a set point and you're set for life. But I think a book like this, The Sweet Spot, which makes you think about what type of life you're living, what type of life you want to have, how are the ways you want to measure the way you look at um, your life, can be a good starting point to make you contemplate some of those things for yourself to find your recipe for what a meaningful life will be. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. Welcome back. So concluding some thoughts on the book, The Sweet Spot by Paul Bloom, and I wanted to go off on a tangent, one that he brings up, um, about suffering and how really actually when you think about it, life involves suffering. You're going to suffer or hurt in some ways. So really what we want to do is choose the right kind of suffering, choose the right kind of pain, because it's going to be there whether you want it or not. It's part of living. It's part of life. Um, but he does make this distinction, which is an important one, between chosen suffering and unchosen suffering, meaning that if you decide to climb Mount Everest and suffer in that way, that's very different from if you lose a loved one in a car accident that you didn't obviously choose in any way. And unfortunately, we sometimes try to think of them the same way or just focusing on this unchosen suffering we tend to want to make sense of things. We're definitely meaning-making animals, that we want to make sense and make meaning of everything. And so a few biases come into play here. Uh, one is, and they're kind of related, one of the status quo bias, meaning that if something is a particular way, we tend to want it. There must be a reason why it's that way. And there's a need for a just world. So we like to believe the, that life is fair and just. So if something bad happened to someone, they must have either done something bad, they either did something stupid that allowed for them to get hurt in that way, or even in some religions or spiritual types of ways of thinking, they did something bad in a past life. There is some kind of karmic justice there. Something is going on. So we tend to want to believe that things are fair. Now, can someone know for sure in some greater, grander scheme, if there was some reason? We can't say for sure, but I think we can understand the bias and see why we would want this to be true, even if really we don't have evidence for it to be the, the case. Even oftentimes atheists will believe things happen for a reason, so there, or there has to be some reason why this bad thing happened as in like some bigger reason. Um, and so we'd like to do that because it's more comforting to think that if something bad happened, maybe it was fair. It's easier for us to sit with that rather than, oh, maybe that was just very unfair what happened to that person. That makes me very sad. Also with the need for a just world when people are victims of things, that can be scary when you hear a story that, oh, someone got mugged and got badly beaten 
And then they say, oh, they were walking at a park or by a park at 10 p.m. And you might quickly go, oh, that's that's so late. Why would you be walking outside at 10 p.m.? When probably every single one of us has been walking outside later than that. And we didn't think it was justified for us to get a beating because of that. But somehow to try to make sense of this, to make it seem okay, we jump to this reason for blaming the person that was hurt because that makes us feel safer. Well, it's not going to happen to me because I won't be stupid. I don't do dumb things or I don't bring it upon myself when really we can see that it wasn't any of those things that made that happen. So it's something to be aware of that we quickly go there. And it actually reminds me of this homeostatic sense of we just want to have a sense of relief, which kind of relates to this book in a way too. So when we hear something and it makes us feel uneasy, we want to resolve that. So we find out, oh, this bad thing happened. Oh, but it, it was supposed to happen. They did something wrong. Okay. If we can convince ourselves enough, we feel good now. We don't feel bad. But if I just say, oh, this really horrible thing happened to someone out of no fault of their own, it doesn't sit easy with us. Even as I say it in this hypothetical way, I can feel it. And so part of, I think, living a good life and mental health in general is being able to sit with painful or uncomfortable feelings and not, uh, or at least being able to resist the urge to quickly get rid of them. So you hear something bad happen to someone, it could just be bad. And that, that could be it, just leaving it at that. And this also plays out in how people, of course, if it's someone they don't know, but people they know, well, something bad happened and people do all sorts of incredible mental gymnastics to find a reason why maybe it was okay. Maybe you've even heard some of these crazy things like someone's family member dies. I've even heard this in Iranian uh, families or Iranian culture, things like, well, maybe they were going to do something really bad in their life and now they're gone. They won't be able to do it. It's laughable how uh, crazy it is and how mean it is. So it's your loved one just died, which is so painful. But also they were going to do something really, really bad, which is also mean. And so now we're all spared that embarrassment or feeling or whatever. The world is spared of that. Uh, Or, you know, people say God wanted another angel when someone's child dies, which sounds in a way kind of cute. But I forgot what movie it was. I I really remember from the trailer or something that, you know, why would why do they need my kid? Why couldn't God take some other angel or why does God need angels. You know, it sounds kind of sweet, but it can be pretty uh, hurtful to a parent who's just lost a child where you try to justify their loss or tell them the meaning. Now, people can have meaning they find through their suffering, but it's just like a meaning of life. It's not one you can give to them, prescribe to them. Oh, you should feel good because this is why you're going through this pain. Sometimes when we really trust someone or feel like they're wise, They can give us some insight that might resonate in some way. So that does happen. But in general, don't give yourself so much credit that you're so wise that your reasoning for why someone suffered will give them a good feeling. So resist that urge. Someone is suffering and you try to figure out why it's good that they're suffering. They should be suffering. It's a tough uh, needle to thread. And most of the time they won't be feeling better. And it probably is or your own feeling of wanting to make it right in some way. Sometimes things are just painful and don't feel good or something tragic has happened. And to think you know the meaning, I think, is a little bit um, 
lacking in humility. Because I even think of people who have a strong belief in religion, and they'll say, well, you know, if they, you know, you believe in an omnipotent God who knows everything that's happening and can intervene and do all sorts of things, and then something happens, they say, I know why God did this. And, you know, this was in God's plan for this reason, even not just maybe you can say a general sense, I don't know why things happen, but they happen for a reason. That's, I think, maybe a little bit more, uh, you can defend that a little bit easier and you leave it in that abstract, but not get down to the specifics. But people in wanting to feel good about what's going on, they'll say, I know why this person died so that this, this and this. And I really think they're just deluding themselves because if you really believe in the type of God you believe in, that doesn't really make sense to me. Or maybe you don't realize the kind of God you believe in. Because if his, her, it, whatever you know, you call that God's knowledge is so omnipotent and they have all this power uh, to be omnipotent, how could you claim to know in this moment the God's plan for for that? I think it's almost childish in a way, but we go there because at times we'll do anything to try to help ourselves feel better. We don't like the way it feels. We have to find that meaning or force it um, out of the, the situation. Now, another reason I think this can be harmful, this mindset that suffering, if it's happening, there has to be a reason for it, is that when we see systematic types of suffering or groups of people who are suffering, often we can use that same type of logic to make us feel like we don't need to do anything to help. Well, there's people starving, they must have done something. Or people will say things like, you know, the world is just unfair. So, you know, things are unfair. And I I really dislike that one a lot. The world is unfair as a reason not to help because, yes, the world is unfair. Actually, I think that's a good place to start because it actually takes away that everything is just fair and just. So the world is unfair some people suffer when they don't need to, being born with uh, into a certain family and, and t- a book from a few weeks ago with certain genes might make you even different, but the world is unfair. We, do, we don't all get the same exact starting point and experiences and all of that. But just because it's unfair doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to make it more fair. We won't make it perfectly fair or just, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't strive towards that. I actually think one of the ways we get meaning in life is to make a more just, fair world, to alleviate the suffering of people, groups of people, individuals. That's one of the things that that we can do. And so this mindset that if someone is suffering, even some people, I think, well, maybe that's part of God's plan that they suffer. To me, it's a very... It misses so much because we're always just making decisions. So let's imagine right now if I was chewing on some food and I started to choke and I was choking and Amir is here in the studio and I hope he doesn't mind me using him in this example. But if you're all listening and I'm choking and Amir just sits there and I, you know, die and you were listening to that, I doubt you would think, well, God maybe wanted him to choke. So Amir didn't need to do anything. Why would he be choking if if it wasn't what God wanted? It sounds almost silly and laughable, and we'd be upset at anyone that doesn't do something. But to me, that's similar to when we think, well, if someone is starving or going through something bad, they just deserve it, or groups of people deserve it. Why should I do something? Maybe it's part of God's plan. We are constantly acting 
on the world, making decisions or not making a decision or taking inaction on certain things. We're constantly doing something. So to think that here I know I shouldn't do something because that already exists doesn't make sense to me because we're constantly making choices of what we do. You know, people sometimes think, oh, well, I believe God's going to protect me, but they put on a safety belt when they're driving. I think you should, but I, I just wonder what does that mean? If he was going to protect you, why do you need that? He can, he, if he's so powerful, he should be able to protect you through that as well. But coming back to people who are suffering, I hope that we, and this theme comes up in different ways, collapse of compassion, um, you know, things along that line where we can give up on helping when we think it's too much. But there is a tendency to always try to come back to this calm homeostasis of everything is okay or right or fair. And I actually hope we resist that, that when you hear about someone suffering, you think that they shouldn't be suffering before you think they should. When you hear about a group of people suffering, you think that's unfair rather than it is fair. And we resist that. And I think to actually be a good human being in this world, we have to sit with those uncomfortable feelings and those painful feelings that we don't live in a fair world and that's not okay. We should try to make it more fair and more just. The world is not fair, absolutely, but your role and my role is to try to make it as fair as we can. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Big thank you to Amir, who would save me if I was hurt in some way, I believe. Um, you've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.